millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome everyone to episode 76 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always, 40 seconds earlier than usual, is my co-host Chloe. How are you? (laughs) Yeah, good. Feeling speedy. Um, And I have all three dogs in here with me today with no chance of a postie though, so I'm feeling optimistic. (laughs) Good. 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 Glad to hear it. Uh, We've got some Patreon shout outs this week. We do. Thank you so much and welcome to Valerie Mitchum, Nina, Melissa, Kiyoki, Brad Tillett, Emma Rose, Michael Russell, Mick McConaughey, Brandon Colbertson, Diane Gregson, Michaela Hashim, Jody, Con George, Troy O, Jason Anderson, Kim Lindsay, Thomas, Jess, Holly Clark, and Thomas Golloway. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. That's a big list there, Chloe. It must be a few people keen on hearing that Urban Legends episode that's got a good rap. And we all love Franco Cozzo. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> all right, let's hop into it. Twenty fourth of November, nineteen eighty nine, Fremantle Prison, Western Australia. The trio removed the bar and slipped out of the workshop window and gained access to the roof of the print shop. From there, they went along the guard's walkway, jumped from roof to roof until they hit the edge of the prison grounds. One of them missed the last jump, fell and injured his leg. The other two vaulted over the outer wall to freedom. The postcard bandit was free once again and the hunt for him was on. The Spargo family from Broadmeadows watched one evening as the young buck from next door crept into their pigeon coop and stole another of their pet birds. He'd done it before, put them in a makeshift coop underneath his house and set up rabbit traps to catch cats who thought they'd stumbled upon a lucky feast. But not this time. When the Spargos caught him and dragged him down to the local cop shop for a stern word, young Brendan Abbott shit himself, literally. His dad, Brian, had told his boy the Spargos were on to him, but he'd pushed it too far. Brian had a bit of a temper, but to Brendan, he'd simply doled out the usual punishments in line with the times. Some of his siblings thought otherwise, as did his mum, Thalma. Brian once let a shot off above the head of his neighbours because they spoke unkindly to him. The Abbott family lived in Broadmeadows, Victoria, a rough-and-tumble neck of the woods to Melbourne's north, quite blue-collar at this time. 
Brendan came into the world on the 8th of May 1962 and grew up in the family home alongside his siblings, Janet, David, Diane and Glenn. The kids attended Dallas State Primary School to begin with, but in 1971, before Brendan was 10, the family up and left for Alice Springs. They lived in a caravan at first, as the intention was to travel on to Darwin, but they never made the last leg of that journey. The next couple of years for the Abbots were anything but settled. David and Janet moved out of home, Thelma had a bad scooter accident, and in 1973, Brian left. Things were tough for Thelma for a while, recovering from injury, looking after their three kids, and working to put food on the table. But things began to turn around after they moved to Mount Isa, and Thelma met a guy named Ted Springle. He landed a job in the Western Australian mining town of Tom Price. So the Abbots packed up in the HQ station wagon and went with him. Brendan had done reasonably well in school to this point. He had even worked at a watchmaker's during the school holidays. This was a good job for him as he had a real strength and interest in taking things apart and putting them back together, very mechanically minded. But into his teens, something seemed to shift for Brendan, as it does for many kids that age. While he was previously the smart one, he'd become more vocal and abusive towards some of his teachers. He even got suspended for a couple of weeks. It seemed like a strange punishment to him, as he was a bit of a loner anyway and mostly enjoyed kicking about in the bush with his dog, so two weeks off from school was almost a gift. But if this punishment didn't hit home, the next one he received sure would. In 1974, Brendan was charged with assault when he hit a girl at his school with a bike pump. He described it as a minor everyday tiff, by no means a savage attack, he hit the girl once and she had no major injuries. But others saw it differently, and it turned out the girl's family had some reputation in the town, and so Brendan was charged, reported to child welfare, and faced children's court for the attack. Brendan, aged 12 at the time, was sentenced to become a ward of the state until the age of 16. His sister Diane said Brendan would do things like give people the bird and tell them to fuck off. Sure, but it was stuff that a lot of kids did, nothing particularly unusual or sinister. Thelma would later say she recalled very little of the incident that led to Brendan being taken away. He hit a girl with a bike pump and that was it. Brendan cried as he was taken away, mostly because he missed his dog. He'd go on to the Hilston Boys' Home, where his good behaviour saw him put into the nearby Darlington Cottages with the Tasker family. These cottages were a step up in living conditions and freedoms for some of the lads who didn't cause much grief. Ted Tasker was a good father-type figure for many of these lads, Brendan included. He kept them in line, and Brendan had a solid year eight in high school at Eastern Hills. He was on the receiving end of some bullying at one stage when a recurring ear infection caused yellow pus to occasionally seep. He grew his hair long to conceal that when it happened. But by and large, he made some good friends, was getting some good schooling, and enjoyed his sports, cricket being a favourite. While he was benefiting from the stability, his behaviour was deemed good enough to give things another chance at home. Brendan was sent back to Thelma after 12 months. She'd since split with Ted and was now seeing a bloke named John Salmon, and he and Brendan got along well, enjoyed working on cars together. But without the structure and stability he'd had for the past 12 months, things slowly went downhill for Brendan. 
He began dabbling in a bit of shoplifting, then some petty break-ins at his school and a local sports shop where he pinched cash and some bikes. Before long, he was back before the children's court and back to Hilston. But things didn't go the same way. There was no stability or father-type figure on the cards for Brendan this time. He was suspended and expelled from a number of schools, which left him bitter and feeling like he'd been screwed over by the bike pump incident from some years earlier. By the age of 15, Brendan had fallen in with a guy who decided one evening it'd be a good idea to purposefully hit a hitchhiker with his car. Brendan, who had no involvement in the incident but was simply with the guy and witnessed it, gave evidence at his trial, thinking it was the right thing to do. He'd later copped some flack for turning Crown Witness, but as a kid he thought he was just doing the right thing. This whole ordeal led Brendan to losing a job that he'd only just recently acquired and his behaviour again went south. The local coppers roughed him up one night after an attempted vehicle theft and soon enough he found himself back with Selma and John Salmon. John helped Brendan get a job in construction after this, thinking maybe some time away from the small town and in the city would do him good. The manual labour sure put some meat on Brendan's thin frame and he became acquainted with women. One woman in particular caught Brendan's eye and her name was Jackie Lord. They met at a swimming pool and the youthfully exuberant Brendan picked up the young blonde Jackie and threw her into the water. They met up again when Jackie waited Brendan's table at the restaurant Miss Maud's and from this point they were on and off again in the years that followed. Jackie's mum wasn't a fan of the rebellious Brendan who was getting himself into plenty of hot water stealing cars and car parts around this time. He'd end up copping two years probation for this and a decent whack of community service. Brendan headed back to Tom Price where he worked electrical jobs despite having no formal qualification. He was simply gifted in this area and able to fix just about anything. Outside of work, Jackie and his V8 Holden Tirana occupied most of his time. And Jackie continued her intrigue with the mysterious Brendan who had an aura of sorts about him, she'd later say, and a sheer determination to achieve whatever he set his mind to. Jackie found Brendan to be humorous, easygoing, and the pair were going strong, even moving out to a roadhouse on the Nullarbor with some friends, where they stayed for a bit and Brendan tried his hand fixing trucks, redoing wiring like an auto-elec, again unlicensed but proficient. But just as Jackie's mum didn't like Brendan, his mum and sister thought that Jackie had a bad influence on him. She might have appeared angelic, but she had a racy side. And indeed, Jackie became quite quick with the fingers herself, shoplifting to the point of kleptomania. Into the 80s, Brendan was on a tear, pinching cars, stealing petrol and speeding around driving without a licence. It all caught up with him and he wound up serving an 18-month stint in Fremantle Prison. Here, Brendan experienced the daily grind of prison, wearing greens, eating tasteless meals on the clock and urinating and defecating in a tin can that got emptied once a day. At the end of his sentence, Brendan knew the dreary limestone walls of Fremantle Prison was something he never wanted to see again. Jackie had waited for him and spent a lot of time with Selma and Diane during the past 18 months and the pair wrote to each other constantly while Brendan was inside. But when he was out, he couldn't help himself and soon enough was out stealing petrol again with his mates. And it wouldn't be long until his behaviour escalated from that of a local rev head and petty thief to serious and violent armed robber. 
Using some inside knowledge, Brendan thought it'd be a grand idea to rob an employee of Miss Maud's one evening while they were doing the cash run. Brendan brought in a mate of his to help, and it all went smoothly at first, but the pair's inexperience soon showed up and led to their arrest. They were spotted leaving the scene in Brendan's own car. They hadn't used a clean getaway vehicle, so it didn't take long for the police to find out who was behind it. It was a stupid move that led to a four-year sentence with a 22-month minimum, and his time in prison wouldn't go so smoothly this time. Brendan's behaviour fluctuated between good and bad. He'd be a model prisoner one moment and get transferred to medium security and then bash a child sex offender and wind up back in maximum. He eventually figured it out and started making friends and working hard in the prison's panel shop. Somehow he even convinced prison officials to get his own Tirana in there to work on. Brendan eventually got work release and was keeping himself busy working in the local fruit and veg markets. He also got weekend release around this time too, which allowed him to see more of Jackie. They'd been allowed a few visits while he was inside and were getting along fine one moment, but then fighting like cat and dog the next. Brendan even punched Jackie in the arm one time and dislocated her shoulder, something he'd never done to a woman before and was very dirty on himself for doing. Jackie too was quite dirty on him. One time when Brendan was out on weekend release, they had a fight and he decided to walk out and go and do something else for the day. What exactly, we don't know, but it or something else evidently pissed Jackie right off. When Brendan returned to work release, they told him they'd received a call noting that he wasn't with his sponsor over the weekend. It was Jackie who had made the call, and she wouldn't cover for Brendan or call work release back to clarify things. Subsequently, Brendan lost all of his leave privileges for the next five weeks until his release. In the meantime, Jackie took off to London on a working holiday. Brendan, under his parole conditions, couldn't follow her. Instead, he got another construction job labouring and driving a roller and spent much of his spare time seeing other women and visiting brothels. Jackie and Brendan very much entered an on-again, off-again phase in the following period of time as they went to Port Hedland and worked odd jobs. Brendan, meanwhile, had begun ramping up his side jobs. One night, Jackie walked in to see their apartment lounge room stocked with VCRs, stereos and microwaves. To Jackie, it looked like Brendan just couldn't keep his nose clean. She thought they were doing okay, having solid jobs, her working at a bar and Brendan doing mechanic work. Brendan thought otherwise. He was only getting paid cash for maybe three days' work per week, so he needed to supplement that. And he was doing so by robbing a number of electrical stores. Demand for the goods was going through the roof. But when Brendan got hauled into the local police station to get questioned about the homeware store robbery, things changed in a big way. During his interview, while one of the detectives stepped out of the room momentarily, Brendan slipped out and fled effectively making him a fugitive on the run, as police thought they had enough on him to lay charges for the homewares robbery. Brendan's growing distrust of the police had now boiled over. Before, he believed telling the truth, confessing, was the right thing to do, but it hadn't done him any favours, so now he thought his best option was to run. A local gun store had also recently been robbed, and while Brendan didn't participate in that, thinking guns were things that only the real bad guys used, he did concede he'd seen the merchandise spread out on a table one evening at one of the perpetrator's houses. But with things the way they were, he felt like he needed a gun now. Maybe he was becoming one of the real bad guys. 
It was 1987 in Perth and another normal day for Carmel Kranz as she arrived to work at the Commonwealth Bank branch in Belmont. Her and a number of the other employees were going about their morning routine when Carmel noticed a man descending from the ceiling. He was wearing a balaclava and carrying a gun and he was quickly followed by another man wearing the same attire and carrying a gun. The pair swore profusely at the workers, ordering them to get down, and the manager, Nigel Minchin, to get the money they'd come for. Paralysed by fear, the staff obeyed the robbers' commands. When suddenly one of the men accidentally discharged their firearm, the shot whizzing past Nigel's head. Another nearby teller had thrown his keys away so the robbers couldn't get to his cash tin. He was tall with white blonde hair and his name was Carl Langdon. Carl incidentally went on to become a star AFL football player for the West Coast Eagles. But on this day in 1987, he was wearing his pink work shirt, doing his banking duties when he became another victim of these hard-talking, violent bank robbers. News of the bank robbery made the headlines, describing the two men breaking in through the ceiling, wearing balaclavas in Australia's first drop-in style bank robbery. As the news was hitting people's ears and the traumatised bank employees were trying to cope with their ordeal, Brendan Abbott and his accomplice, known as Stabby, were splitting the $113,000 cash they'd made off with. $13,000 went to Brendan's mate Peter, their wheelman who had driven their Mitsubishi Cordia to safety once the pair returned from the branch. Brendan and Stabby split the $100,000. They might have gotten more had an alarm from a nearby shop not gone off and convinced them to flee with what they had. With the heat on, Brendan wisely thought it was time to get out of town and he headed north towards Darwin in a Toyota Land Cruiser he'd recently paid $6,000 cash for. Him and Jackie were still seeing each other but seemingly on and off again. He was seeing someone else on the side, which apparently annoyed Jackie, but she was said to have been seeing someone else too, and this guy was a federal police officer. Brendan wasn't keen on that, with this guy being from the other side of the fence, so to speak. He thought Jackie was stringing this fed along to get off on some minor drugs charges she had pending. Whatever the case, Jackie leaked some information about Brendan, the Land Cruiser he'd bought and the direction he was heading, to this police officer. As news of the bank robbery and hunt for the suspects spread throughout the media, there was a $7,000 reward offered for information leading to the capture of the perpetrators. Jackie contacted the police and provided that information, at least in the broad sense of where Brendan was heading, but she firstly tipped them off to where Peter, the wheelman, was. Brendan heard about Peter's arrest while scoffing down a counter meal on his way towards Darwin, no doubt concerning him greatly. So much so, he changed his plans. Police, meanwhile, didn't know exactly where Brendan was, but knew the general direction. They skipped ahead to Port Headland, having a hunch that he might stop past an old watering hole of his where he had pulled a few bar shifts back in the day. Here, they retrieved some records of his employment, but they didn't find Brendan. They did, however, find a colleague of his, a guy named Jamie, And Jamie had seen his pal Brendan recently and even given him a ride to the airport. Police pressed Jamie for his friend's flight details and they were soon able to arrest Brendan Abbott upon his arrival at Perth Airport a short time later. 
Brendan was intent on the police not charging Jackie or his mum Thelma for anything. He'd given his mum a stolen washing machine and Jackie had confessed to some involvement in their criminal activity. That part panned out for Brendan, but he copped a 12-year sentence for the Belmont bank robbery. Jackie received the $7,000 reward money, some of which she sent to Brendan to help him get set up in prison, buy a TV set and some bits and pieces. But Brendan's family couldn't believe what Jackie had done and were very dirty on her. Brendan was a bit more forgiving of Jackie, not so much of his former mate Peter, who Brendan believed had also helped the police. He got off lightly while Brendan and Stabby copped the full whack. But Brendan took one last chance before he was hauled away to lunge at his old mate Peter in court, angered by the perceived betrayal. Although more gracious with Jackie, they did go their separate ways after this and Jackie went on to marry a man named Tony and have two children. And while she enjoyed the white picket fence, Brendan was back to the limestone walls of Fremantle Prison for the bank robbery, string of break-ins and escaping police custody. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. On the 4th of January 1988, there was a riot in Fremantle Prison and Brendan Abbott was one of 12 inmates who were behind organising it. The initial intention of the riot was to be a diversion for a mass escape, but it later morphed into a set of three demands when chaos ensued and a bunch of fires were started and a number of prison officers were taken hostage. The ringleaders had prepared weeks in advance, collecting fuel for the fires from the prison lawnmowers, smuggling it inside their drink bottles. And when it came time to strike, hordes of prisoners stormed the cell block, splashing guards with boiling water and using whatever they could as weapons, cutlery, bits of wood, buckets, you name it. Flames ripped through the place, more so than the ringleaders planned, and it actually prevented their planned escape. They later took a number of guards hostage and demanded to speak with the Attorney General, media and sought a guarantee of no retribution. After a night of negotiating and only their third demand being met, the riot concluded with the prisoners swapping the hostages for food and cigarettes and the state's bill was calculated at close to $1.8 million in damages. For his part in the riot, Brendan received an additional six years, which was later reduced to four upon appeal. 
His brother, Glenn, was also in jail at this time for armed robbery and participated in the riot. This was obviously pretty big news at the time and took a while to calm down and for order to be restored back at Fremantle Prison. Yet despite his role in the riot, Brendan maintained a civil relationship with many of the prison staff, and by 1989, he was working in the prison's tailor workshop, where he fit and sewed uniforms for many of the roles within the prison. And it was during this time Brendan came up with another escape plan, one that was a little more crafty and less destructive than a riot. Brendan spent a couple of months building up his sewing and tailoring skills in preparation for this plan, which would involve making fake prison guard uniforms. He pinched guards' patches from their desk drawers, found old fabric in storerooms, smuggled a hacksaw, blade and radios, which would be used to monitor police activity post-escape. A young bloke named Aaron Reynolds was brought in on the plan, which was known only to Brendan and an associate of his named Willie. Aaron had been transferred to Fremantle after his recent escape from another prison, and he only had a short sentence remaining. Brendan tried to convince him out of the escape plan, but he was adamant. So Brendan, Aaron and Willie began using the hacksaw blade to gradually cut through a bar within the tailor's workshop over time. And once it was cut through, it buckled and looked quite obvious to their eyes that something was structurally amiss. So they expedited plans. It was now or never, Brendan thought. Time to make the dash, even though they hadn't acquired the superglue yet to stick the guard patches onto their makeshift uniforms. On the 24th of November, 1989... The trio removed the bar and slipped out of the workshop window and gained access to the roof of the print shop. From here, Brendan, Aaron and Willie went along the guard walkway, jumped from roof to roof until they hit the edge of the prison grounds and vaulted over the outer wall to freedom. At least Brendan and Aaron did. Unfortunately, Willie missed one of the last jumps, fell and injured his leg and was unable to make the break. Brendan couldn't have been happier to see the back of Fremantle Prison once again, a place he thought was a right shithole. One night he'd even been woken by a cockroach trying to have a feed from his mouth. But the first feed Brendan had after escaping was at Hungry Jack's. After he and Aaron caught a bus out of town, right back past the prison where the alarm bells were ringing, Aaron grinned from ear to ear as they munched on a pair of whoppers, but Brendan's mind was fixed on one thing and one thing only – avoiding recapture. He knew they'd be coming fast. Fremantle Prison eventually closed in 1991 and Brendan Abbott remains the only prisoner in its 150-year history to escape and never be returned. As news of the pair's escape hit the media, those who'd been victims of Brendan's during some of his armed robberies undoubtedly experienced some momentary fear that maybe this guy was going to try and track them down for providing testimony against him. But Brendan and Aaron's minds were far more fixed on remaining free. But to do that, they needed money. So they robbed an ANZ bank branch first, before buying a lot of camping gear from disposal and supply places. They also stole some guns and slept mostly on beaches. Aaron got himself a camera. He had a keen interest in photography. But Brendan came to think of the youngster as less than an ideal accomplice. When, while robbing a store which was actually closed at the time, Aaron poked his head up in the window and scared a pair of passing girls. In a calm and clever act, 
Brendan ran out of the store and spoke with the girls, posing as the store owner doing a stock take with his peekaboo mate. It diffused the situation completely and stopped the girls calling the police. The police hunt for the pair, however, was going less than smoothly as communication complications arose between departments and rivalries between the states further hampered the sharing of information. Meanwhile, Brendan and Aaron scraped by, robbing a TAB next, before a close call with police had Brendan gunning their Mitsubishi Cordia. A seemingly routine traffic stop had Brendan thinking he'd be able to talk them out of this. However, Aaron wasn't in a talking mood, evidently, and began firing at the police vehicle with his shotgun. The time for talking was over, and Brendan put his foot down and sped off, managing to outrun the police vehicle and escape. The pair travelled far and wide, Brendan Abbott's myth growing within the media as each month passed and he remained uncaptured. Where was this genius fugitive, who was, by all accounts, a likeable bloke, one who police admired and detested at the same time? Queensland, South Australia, Western Australia would all serve as Brendan's main states for committing robberies, but he'd spend a lot of time in New South Wales and Victoria and even ventured to Tasmania and Northern Territory at one stage too. Brendan and Aaron began living a tourist lifestyle. On a bus ride, they met a Japanese tourist named Masao Ayuda. They befriended him and travelled around Australia with him. Brendan had tried learning a bit of Japanese inside prison, so his and Masao's broken version of one another's native languages were enough for them to form somewhat of a friendship during their travels. Money was no object, that's for sure, and if Brendan and Aaron ran out, they just robbed another place along the way. Resorts, hotels, pools, they were seeing many of the places everyone wants to, but never gets the chance to with the daily grind of life. And they were enjoying plenty of female company too, often paid for. But things with Aaron Reynolds went sour during their travels when one night at a hotel bar, Brendan discovered that Aaron had been mouthing off about crimes he'd committed, that the alias Walter he'd been using wasn't his real name, and even using his radio to try and tune into the frequencies of local authorities. Brendan, or Peter as he was calling himself, tried to smooth it all over with those Aaron had been mouthing off to, saying that Walter had a bad habit of big noting himself. But the story wasn't swallowed, so Brendan took Massau and quickly left Cairns on a flight to Brisbane, parting ways with Aaron. They went on to the Gold Coast where Brendan said his goodbyes to Massau. He still had no idea who Walter and Peter were and would only later learn the truth. Aaron Reynolds was caught soon after this as he unsuccessfully robbed a bank in Perth. He served a further nine years in jail, tried to take his own life at one stage and was eventually deported back to the UK where he hadn't lived since he was six. One thing police did find in Aaron Reynolds' possession was a roll of film from his camera. They developed the photos, and a number of them were just him and Brendan and Masao on their travels, but some had Aaron posing at the front of police stations, seemingly goading law enforcement to catch them. Some snaps were even said to have police working in the background at the scene of the crime they'd just committed. The pictures were never intended to be for anyone other than some family members, perhaps. Yet, police thought it would be a good idea to send these snaps to the papers and have them publish stories about Brendan Abbott, this outlaw on the run, who was sending them snaps of his travels, 
bragging that they couldn't catch him. They thought that this would galvanise the public, but it almost did the opposite. Australians love a good outlaw and this guy wasn't a rapist or a murderer. He soon became known as the postcard bandit. The myth just took legs of its own. Here was this criminal genius with a huge IQ and Houdini-like escape talents on the run and giving police the middle finger by sending them postcards of his travels. It was all a myth. Brendan Abbott never once sent a postcard or a photo to the police and he certainly didn't enjoy the notoriety or attention it brought him. But police say he continued robbing banks successfully in the following years, hitting the Westpac at Woodville, Adelaide on January the 26th, 1990. Again, he dropped through the ceiling, wearing a balaclava, carrying a cash bag and gun before demanding the staff to fill it up. While he was allegedly robbing places in South Australia around this time, he was living on the Gold Coast, and it was here he met a woman named Louise Laycock. She didn't know who he was or what he did at first, and Brendan played it pretty cool. Louise's mum, unlike Jackie's, thought he was a decent bloke, better than some of the riffraff she'd seen her daughter with. Brendan often left for extended periods of time, days, weeks, but eventually the pair moved into a place in Blacktown together. Over time, Brendan opened up to Louise, telling her stories of what he'd done, and she saw that he carried a gun. At first, Louise and her mum weren't completely believing what they were hearing, but they eventually came around when they read some articles in the paper about some of his exploits. They knew he robbed banks, but he was a caring provider. Louise had a young son named Tim, and Brendan was good to him too. Soon, they fell pregnant and had a son named James. Brendan was said to be a proud and loving father. But life wasn't easy with Brendan being away for extended periods of time and eventually they moved back into Louise's mum's house for more support. And during these times, police believed Brendan was mainly heading back to hit banks in South Australia. They believed he robbed the Woodville Westpac at least once more, the NAB in Morfitt Street, Adelaide, and a Commonwealth branch in Westlakes, netting anywhere between three and 55 grand each time. He was publicly named a suspect in the Adelaide Advertiser for these crimes in mid-1990. Police believed it was him by the similar MO. And in between his work and normal life in southern Queensland and northern New South Wales, Brendan continued to travel around the country, using disguises as he went. Wigs, hats, dyeing his hair, moustaches, he even put on 20 kilos of weight at one stage. Brendan would find himself another starstruck young protege in the time after this, a young crim named Trevor Bailey. He'd recently been released from prison and knew of Brendan Abbott's mythical reputation. Police believed Brendan and Trevor conducted a number of bank robberies together in the early 90s. Trevor was based in Tasmania, which gave Brendan another safe house option should he ever need it. Trevor also appeared to become close with Louise Laycock during this time too, Things between Brendan and Louise had become strained. Love-hate, it was said, possibly deteriorating over time with his activities and extended absences. It was suggested Louise had some fleeting connections with others, as may have Brendan, and the pair allegedly even argued over her relationship with Trevor too. On January the 15th, 1993, Trevor's sister dropped him off at the Launceston Airport for a flight. He called her the following day and said he'd landed, where and what for we don't know, 
What we do know is that Trevor Bailey disappeared after this. No one has ever heard from him or seen him again since. Being in the game he was, it's possible he met with foul play at the hands of someone in these circles. It's possible he took off of his own accord too. Whatever the case, the Bailey family are still without answers to this day. Brendan Abbott later laughed at any suggestion that he had anything to do with Trevor's disappearance. And in the time after this, Louise and Brendan separated for good. Unbeknownst to them both, however, police had been surveilling Louise Laycock's place for some time. And this was due to a tip-off they'd received from someone who knew Louise and knew her boyfriend, Peter. They'd seen a picture of a man who was apparently a notorious bank robber and prison escapee, and he looked remarkably like Louise's boyfriend, Peter. It was one of many leads and sightings that police pursued, yet Brendan remained one step ahead, cagey and always on the move, making it hard for them to get a solid follow on his trail. Brendan had even honed his counterfeiting skills by this time and made fraudulent documentation to enable him to get a passport. He then took a trip to Thailand and perhaps he should have stayed. But despite police and others thinking he'd stolen millions, the cost of being a fugitive and splitting takes with his accomplices while providing for Louise and his child hadn't left him with enough to move away and survive overseas indefinitely. He needed a few more big hauls. One was a NAB branch in Springwood, Brisbane, where he took close to $200,000 allegedly. But his biggest so far would be on Christmas Eve of 1993 at Pacific Fair. Brendan prepared meticulously for the job, disconnecting electrical elements within the bank, drilling out locks and installing listening devices inside the night before just to ensure none of his handiwork had been discovered prior to entering the bank. But things didn't always go to plan. He even drop-kicked his radio across the floor upon entering to commit the hold-up, a messy start to proceedings. And he had been spotted by bank staff prior, as he needed to get closer to the building due to interference with the listening device. So they got a good look at him for the police sketch artist. Life on the run continued for Brendan after this. Regular travels up and down the East Coast, making friends with more Japanese tourists and women. He met a masseuse named Georgia next, and they would have an intense relationship. He spent much of 1994 in Queensland and caught up with his brother Glenn again. That was until Glenn got pulled over by police, and he ended up pepper spraying the officers. Brendan couldn't get hold of his brother after this, which instinctively he knew meant the cops at him. His status had been elevated to that of Australia's most wanted man by now, and police had been following Glenn Abbott for some time in an effort to locate Brendan. Glenn and Brendan had been communicating via a pager. Police were able to track down a post office box being used by Brendan, and inside they located a bill for the paging service. The PO box was in the Gold Coast, but the address listed for the bill was in Cairns. Brendan wasn't staying in Cairns at the time, but had recently returned in March of 1995 to pick up his car, which was getting some work done. So he briefly returned to his address in Cairns while organising this. On the 26th of March 1995, while Brendan was sitting in his car, a casually clad man walked across the road towards his car and pulled out a silver revolver, fixing it on him. At first, Brendan thought he was being robbed, but when the man clarified his initial demand for him to get on the ground, he knew it was the police and he was done for. He put up his hands and hit the deck. 
Police had finally caught the postcard bandit after almost six years on the run. It was back to the confines of a cell now for Brendan Abbott, with sparse family visits to follow amidst innumerable court visits and a plethora of stories in the media. His robbery spree was over, and the unparalleled security he'd face next would mean he surely wasn't going to escape again. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Inside of Sir David Longland Correctional, Brendan began corresponding with Jackie Lord again. She had seemingly moved on in her life, but for whatever reason, decided she now wanted to get back in touch. So the pair were now talking again. Brendan would later say that he'd given up asking why he still feels the way he does about Jackie, that it had to be chemistry. And of all the women in his life, he's never been able to love another woman as much as he did Jackie, even though she had caused him the most grief. The discussion of escape in prison is a regular thing, particularly for someone like Brendan Abbott. The idea of escaping with assistance from the outside had been mentioned many times and even tried before, unsuccessfully, with the inmates coming undone on that occasion. Brendan figured it was something that could be done, however, it would largely depend on the person on the outside and their ability to shoot at the prison's perimeter vehicle. A young bloke named Brendan Berishon, who we'll simply call Berishon for the sake of clarity, piped up saying that he could do it. Brendan thought it was just bluster at first. The kid was all of 19 and soon to finish up his sentence for armed robbery. But the kid was pretty firm on being the gunman and wheelman once he was on the outside for his idol, the postcard bandit. The steel bars at Sir David Longland couldn't be cut with a hacksaw like he'd done previously. The carbon content in the steel was too high and it had just snapped the blade. To get the job done... Brendan would have to use something called angel wire, which was essentially diamond-encrusted wire. I got the impression he smuggled this inside of a stereo he was allowed to have. Although that wasn't 100% clear, he did manage to get his hands on a length of this stuff. He proceeded to use a drawer handle from a kitchen cupboard as a brace for the wire before beginning to cut his cell bars over a three-night period. He'd also acquired an Allen key, which he used to dismantle the hinge of the louver window. He simply unscrewed that, made the cut beneath the hinge line, and then slid it back to hide the cut once he'd finished for the night. But Brendan had to wait on others to do their cutting next. Four other prisoners, convicted killers Jason Nixon, Oliver Alinchich, and Andrew Jeffrey, alongside convicted rapist Peter Sterling, all had to be brought in on the plan because Brendan either needed something from them or they'd heard about it and been included under an oath of secrecy. 
In the lead-up to the escape, Berishon on the outside had maintained contact with the crew through phone calls, all recorded but using code language. However, he hadn't carried through with a few things prior, so on the night of the escape, which had been brought forward, Brendan was worried young Berishon wouldn't even show up. But he did, and after an escape that didn't go to plan, with people's fingers getting crushed under chairs, razor wire being snipped that sounded the alarm prematurely, the five escapees made it over the outer wall. This was on the 5th of November, 1997, less than three years after his recapture. Berishon unloaded a few rounds into the air towards the guards who'd been called to the scene inside the grounds. Then he fired directly at the perimeter vehicle, which showed up shortly thereafter and disabled it. They all fled to a getaway vehicle, headed for a Gold Coast safe house for the night. Brendan's reputation meant everyone wanted to team up with him on the lamb, but he made it clear only one of them could. Everyone else had to go their own way. Brendan spent his first night free sleeping under an upturned life-saving boat in Coolangatta, and soon after, he robbed a Commonwealth bank with Jason Nixon. But it was ultimately young Brendan Berishon who became Brendan's new apprentice after this. They went from northern New South Wales on overnight sleeper trains down to Melbourne, taking in a quick stop at a strip club along the way. Peter Sterling was the first fugitive to be recaptured, confiding in a working girl who he was before the police arrived shortly after and slapped the irons on him. Oliver Alinchich was caught within a week after making a sexual advance on a woman. Jason Nixon was captured a week later again in a hotel in a dramatic scene where he pulled a shotgun on two officers, but they managed to subdue him and not get blown away. Both received commendations for their efforts. Andrew Jeffrey, the last remaining escapee aside from Brendan Abbott, had made his way to Melbourne too, but when he mouthed off outside the Royal Hotel in Footscray one night, not far from Franco Cozzo's furniture shop, bragging about being one of the escapees, a passing off-duty copper heard and tackled him to the ground. He was sent packing to Queensland in irons. Brendan, leader of the gang with one brain, a news headline read, was the only one still at large. In early December 1997, police made their way to the Tullamarine Airport in Melbourne after a reported postcard bandit sighting. But Brendan Abbott was back in Western Australia by this time after a long absence and allegedly robbing a Commonwealth bank this time, hauling around $300,000 dressed in a grey wig and businessman-like attire. The media headlines were getting pretty insane around this time too, making a mockery of the police and corrections for being bested by this guy once again. Meanwhile, the two Brendans got themselves a little studio loft in Nicholson Street, Carlton, and furnished it meagerly, only splashing out on a Sony PlayStation to keep themselves entertained. Brendan Berishon, however, had formed a couple of worrisome connections around this time. The first was with a girl named Michelle, who was originally from Thailand and worked at a nearby brothel. They'd begun seeing each other, and Berishon was also scoring a bit of heroin through her. Brendan could understand the younger man's need for something in his life, but he didn't have these vices himself, unlike a lot of other crooks. Maybe women were his vice, but he learned enough by now to keep that at bay for the sake of his own freedom. Around this time, in 97-98, there'd be a crackdown on heroin use and dealing in Melbourne's CBD due to a spike in overdoses. 
This forced Brendan Berrishon to the outer suburbs to continue scoring drugs. He was in Box Hill one day doing so when he was spotted and pulled up by two police officers. When they asked for a look in his bag and saw some ammunition, Berrishon pulled his pistol out and shot at them. He hit one of the officers twice in the leg and another through the bicep. Berrishon fled back to the house in Carlton and told Brendan what had happened. But he dropped his little bag back at the scene in Box Hill. And while the stuff in his bag didn't specifically list their address, it did contain ID and numbers that would ultimately lead back to the house. So they knew they had to leave and the urgency was confirmed when they heard a helicopter circling overhead. They left promptly in a Toyota Land Cruiser they'd bought for such an occasion, but Berrishon wanted to see Michelle again and he assured Brendan he hadn't called her on the phone before, there was no way they'd connect her to them. They ended up picking Michelle up from the Adelaide airport the following day when police were raiding the Nicholson Street address. And with what they located inside, they were able to connect Michelle to Brendan Berrishon and publicised her photo in the media. From tip-offs, they were able to trace her movements through phone records and with the timing of potential flights narrowing the window further. This essentially led police to Darwin as being one of the only locations the pair could be if Michelle was indeed with them. While holed up in Darwin, preparing for a flight to Uluru Airs Rock, where the two Brendans were going to camp in the wilderness for some weeks, Michelle was getting ready to fly off to the Gold Coast after her and Berishon said their goodbyes. Brendan Abbott was out buying supplies and doing some laundry when he noticed a bloke sitting in a sedan in a nearby car park. It seemed odd, but he was paranoid. After the guy left... Brendan went to the spot where he was parked and from it, he could spot the tail of his own Land Cruiser. As he continued on towards the shops, he then saw some blokes in a car wearing flak jackets. And next thing it was on, screaming all around him, he hit the deck, hands up, and they came from everywhere and cable tied him. Inside the Land Cruiser, police located a long list of camping gear, over $20,000 in cash, numerous wigs and disguises, firearms, a computer with software for making fake identifications, cannabis and some theatrical makeup. Berishon and Michelle were holed up in a nearby apartment, the phone number for which Brendan had scrawled into the kangaroo skin wallet he had on him when captured. He often used this to take notes, as it wasn't permanent. You could just rub out whatever you'd written with a swipe of some saliva. But the police had seen it under light and connected the number to the apartment. Inquiries found that a Jason Parker and someone identified as his Asian girlfriend had recently checked in. From here, it didn't take long to identify both Berishon and Michelle. Brendan Berishon received a 13-year sentence with a nine-year minimum back in Victoria for the Box Hill shooting, and he still had the attempted murder charges for firing at guards during the prison escape to answer for after that. He's continued making some headlines for his activities as recently as 2019. Brendan Abbott, the postcard bandit, had been on the run for six months when he was caught on the 2nd of May 1998, and to this day, he remains in prison. 
He's been charged with a number of robberies and escape-related offences, effectively culminating in a combined 34-year sentence. He's done his time and been released in Queensland on parole, but is currently serving time in Western Australia for crimes he committed there. The Queensland state elections in 1998 was said to be quite competitive and the recapture of Brendan Abbott was certainly promoted as a political achievement. Many people have commented that Brendan Abbott is pretty much a political prisoner as his escapes highlighted a number of flaws within the system, yet authorities have continued to promote him as a criminal genius who needs to be kept in solitary confinement. As you'd expect, Brendan has launched a number of appeals and transfer requests, some seemingly to sort out outstanding warrants he has in other states, such as South Australia. We won't detail all of that, as at the end of the day, he's still behind bars. Prison officers have described Brendan Abbott as a model inmate, pleasant and polite, basically a businessman dressed in browns. He also caught the attention of a woman named Tilly Needham, who Brendan described as his stalker. She was a former political candidate and a policeman's wife, and apparently professed some kind of undying love for Brendan, something I gather wasn't reciprocated. A film about Brendan Abbott entitled The Postcard Bandit was made in 2003, starring actor Tom Long, and he's become quite a talented painter on the inside, producing extraordinary works of art depicting René Rivkin and even a watercolour called Little Boy Blue, which he painted after the November 2009 National Apology to Forgotten Australians. While many police and prison officials who've dealt with Brendan Abbott believe him when he says he's changed his ways in the past 20 years, some still believe he has a fortune stashed away out there which he'll retrieve when he gets out. Brendan has been quoted as saying... If I could turn back the clock, I'd love to have been a doctor or a lawyer or anything other than a criminal who now spends his days in a prison cell. As for stealing money from the banks, I've no regrets whatsoever, other than wishing I could have done so without leaving traumatised individuals in my wake. Personally, I feel the banks are the biggest thieves in society. In June 2019, his latest attempt at appeal for his freedom was rejected. He'll be eligible for parole in Western Australia in July 2026. He'll remain on parole in Queensland until 2040, but there's still the chance of him being picked up for outstanding warrants in South Australia after his release. Derek Pedley, who wrote the book Australian Outlaw, The True Story of the Postcard Bandit Brendan Abbott, which was a great resource for us in creating this episode, has said the following... Brendan Abbott is effectively the longest-serving prisoner who's been held in solitary confinement in Australia in the modern era. He and his fellow inmates are kept segregated for more than 20 hours a day, regularly strip-searched and moved from cell to cell. Brendan continues to suffer anxiety and related health disorders. But Brendan Abbott, the bank robber and escape artist, remains in jail. Some say he'll rob more banks if he's released as a six-year-old man. It's possible he could try, but not probable he'd succeed with the technological advances in the past years and the security banks have nowadays. Brendan himself says he's learned his lesson and just wants to work in a wrecking yard and lead a quiet life. Many, including the Queensland Parole Board, police who chased him, prison officers who guarded him, and Derek Pedley, who wrote the book on him, believe the man. 
And with murderers being released in some cases in less than half this time, the question has to be asked, has Brendan Abbott served his time? Wow. Well, I don't have a lot of thoughts on this one, but um, my biggest one is that it's just a shame that he wasted his intelligence on doing something like this. Obviously, he was a really smart man and that quote about, you know, that he I guess essentially could have been a doctor or a scientist or something. He's really sad that he ended up robbing banks and is now in prison. I just think anyone that, you know, is smart and spends that much time in jail, it's just such a waste of a life. That's what I guess regardless of if he should or shouldn't be, that is going to really stay with me on this one. How about you? Yeah, you know, it's just interesting to think, isn't it? If there's, uh, if there is some some cash out there, or you know, <laughs> if he if he was uh, clever enough to hide it, or or yeah. whatever his plan might be, if there's a a sort of an end game for it all. But uh, yeah, I mean, it does seem like a, a long time that he's been inside. Um, but uh, you know, I suppose there are uh, a, a lot of people in those robberies who uh, get affected by that, you know, to have people come yeah. in through the ceiling. He's, he has acknowledged that, admittedly, um, you know, mm. the trauma that that causes people. And and you, you've probably known them too. A lot of people will know people who've wor- worked in banks and, uh, mm. and they kind of never fully recover from that sort of trauma and that, that, that anxiety that gets caused when something like that happens with the people yeah. rolling in with guns and balaclavas. But, um, you know, on the flip side... He he isn't a murderer or a rapist, and he's been uh, he, he will have been in jail for uh, you know quite some time. Um, so mm. we'll leave that up to everyone to uh, discuss and and talk about while we move on to some uh, some happy thoughts. Yeah, well, um, what's yours? I, you're a bit under the weather, so I feel mm. like you're going to be <laughs> struggle this week. Do you have one? <laughs> I barely have one. Yeah, it's probably just make just making it through. Yeah, so we've. we've <laughs> Um, it's been a, a tough week, just a bit of a cold, but um, yes, I'm. Uh, my happy thought is just being here, so <laughs> <laughs> and being conscious for the, the recording. That's it. What's yours? Um, mine is that I just have a friend that's coming up to stay next weekend, and I live in um, a kind of regional bit of Victoria, about an hour and a half from the CBD, um, and it's a bit. I'd say touristy, if anyone knows what that means. Um, And she always just says to me that it's so wholesome around here. You know, I have horses nearby and paddocks and stuff and um, I've got kind of an afternoon evening plan for us where I'll get to be a tourist where I live, which I don't often do, and um, I'm already really looking forward to it. So that's mine. Sounds good. Um, And that's it from us. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. Over there, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get ad-free early release regular episodes and also a swag of bonus content. The recent Urban Legends episode on Grandma Rambo, or Grambo as we called her, and Franco Cozzo has gotten some great feedback. So we're working on the second episode of that series now. And when you sign up, you get access to the full back catalogue of episodes too. There's probably upwards of 30 episodes there, blooper reels, and a few other special edition things. Yeah, so go and check it out if you're keen for some more content. Uh, In the meantime, thanks for listening, folks, and we'll be back with you all again soon. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.